0: and the success, the attention I received from others. It was all to fuel my narcissism and my idols. But God graciously wrecked my life uh, on a Thursday night, October of my junior year. The gospel took root and the Holy Spirit began to work and the refining process began, but only with great tension a wrestling match began to ensue uh, in me, where I began this relationship of hating sin and loving God, but I was still holding on to a major idol in my life. I remember my freshman year, I'm um, having no friends, moving to a new city, and basically pouring all of my efforts into um, baseball. So four years, I was working hard to gain a college scholarship, to play baseball, and then to become a teacher and a coach. Like, that was my plan. Uh, during the offseason, I would spend three nights a week um, at a baseball training camp here. I'd build, I would built a pitching mound in my backyard. Um, I spent my sophomore and junior years uh, summer playing travel baseball with the best players in the region, all fighting to get noticed by college coaches. Everything Was on the line, uh, was on this line to orchestrate my dream. It was all I thought about and it literally controlled me. After becoming a believer, I continued this same pursuit. I thought that God would bless this because this is not inherently sinful. But through the process of sanctification, God began to change my heart. My desires changed from being a teacher and coach to being a student pastor. I had a man who was pouring into me, ministering to me, discipling me. And so now it was worship baseball, get a college scholarship, then become a student pastor. I had it all planned out. Everything was set in stone. But then all of a sudden, you know, all I need to do is just pray. I need to pray, God bless this, open up doors. Lord, I need you to bless my plan. Fast forward to the last scrimmage of my senior year. Right before the season began, we were playing Ohio County, and earlier that week, I had tweaked my back, and the coach and I agreed we're going to shut things down until Friday. And uh, my now wife, Bethany, was there for this, but my my back felt pretty good, uh, and I was going to throw six outs. Um, and on my last batter I faced, the pain escalated to a point in my back that it was absolutely excruciating. You know the guy you see in Walmart, I don't mean to stereotype, or McDonald's, and they're like humped over like this, and they can't walk right because they had bad posture their whole life? That's how I walked off the field, in excruciating pain. And this statement just went through my head. as God, what are you doing? What is happening to me? I went from starting every three to four days since my freshman year to only throwing about three to four times that year. I was angry at God. It affected my relationships with my parents horribly. Three different times my senior year, I had packed up my clothes of my uniforms, put them in the car, and I said, I quit. I'm done. I was asking God why and asking God to complete my plans I had been asking him to bless. And now this? like What was going on? My asking to turn into demanding. When it didn't happen, it turned into anger and bitterness and frustration towards him and my relationships. I did have opportunities to go and play baseball, but God literally was putting roadblocks in my life. My life had changed, but I was selfishly asking him to coordinate his plans around my life, around my plans for my life. I mean, I knew I was going to be a youth minister. Surely that would self-righteously justify me to get what I wanted. That goal to play college baseball was the idol I was serving. A true idol is something that you fear and I fear the thought of not accomplishing that goal because I believed I needed it to find value and worth and to not be a disappointment to others. You can imagine when I had to tell my coaches and the people who poured into me for year after year and I had to tell them that I'm not going to be playing college baseball One gentleman to this day still has bitterness towards me because I did not take that step. I wish I could say I had an aha moment, repented of that idolatry and began to ask God for new things with right motives. But instead, God used my injury to disrupt my plan. I can stand to you right now, feel sharpness, pain in my back. And it does not remind me of what I did not get. It reminds me of what God began to do in my life. That moves towards frustration. so so God allowed my back injury to slow me down and hear his voice. God in his mercy did not give me what I wanted so I could ultimately gain what he knew I needed. Just as there was in my story, there is hope and tension for us today in our text. But before we dive in, we must deal and reconcile with what this passage is not. First point, Jesus is not speaking to how a non-believer finds salvation. So many times we tell people, you just need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. Jesus is talking to his children. He is not speaking to those who hopes who will follow one day. So all they need to do is these things to be saved. Have you ever wondered how silly this sounds to someone finding salvation? Scripture uses terms to describe a lost person as blind, as deaf, and as dead. So in verses 7 and 8, you have a scripture saying to ask, seek, and knock. That doesn't make sense. So a blind and deaf and dead person is asking and seeking and knocking? This is the silliest thing ever. Jesus tells a non-believer to do something that is humanly and spiritually impossible. If you still believe this is a way of salvation, Jesus tells you to ask, seek, and knock. Then when you find that door and begin to knock, just hopefully, hopefully he'll be there and open the door for you. This is not what is happening here. We can't and don't want... Um, We can't and don't want to find God isn't the whole point of us being a child of wrath. We don't think we need a Savior. We think we don't need a Savior. No, we are in desperate need for God to find us and to accept us. He's not telling non-believers how to pray. It is a hard conversation to have, especially to our non-believing friends and family. But scripture argues that God does not hear nor answer the prayers of non-believers. This is a tough truth. Now God can do whatever he wants and he will. He will hear the cries of the non-believer when the process of the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life for salvation. God can do whatever he wants. But I want you to hear these scripture versions. We don't have to visit, have time to visit all of these. I'm just going to throw out these, and if you have time to write them down, please do and revisit them. Where God is specifically recanting the prayers of non-believers because they are in sin, they are separated from God. James four three, Psalm sixty six eighteen, John nine thirty one, Jeremiah fourteen ten through twelve. Proverbs 1, 24 through 25 and 28. Proverbs 28, 9. Zechariah 7, 11 through 13. Proverbs twenty-one thirteen, Isaiah 1, 15. Jeremiah 11, 11 through 14. James 1, 6 through 7. Luke 12, 1. Luke 18, 11 through 14. Psalms 18, 40 through 41. This is the last one I promised. Micah 3, 2 through 4. See, I told you we didn't have time, but they're there. Go, read God's word. It is a tough, difficult truth. That is why we must pray for God to work in the lives who are non-believers to draw them to repentance so they may hear God's voice and respond. Secondly, Jesus is not saying, your father is waiting to hear your requests, and when you make these requests, he will respond with your need. Many will say, the word says, all I need to do is ask, seek, and knock for it, and he will provide my ever waking request. Listen, church, Jesus is not the genie in the bottle waiting to be sung out by Christina Aguilera. Like, that's not what's going on here. He is not the genie in the bottle. Remember my story. Remember my story that I told you. This is how I believed before Christ found and saved me and how I believed in my early days as a follower of Jesus. I really truly thought that if it's a good thing, God should bless me with it. But so many of us, at moments in our lives, we bargain and we haggle with God and we want Him to respond in the time of want. But when He doesn't respond, our typical responses is, is one of the following. First, God doesn't keep His promises. If He's not going to give me what I want, then He doesn't keep His promises. Number two, God doesn't love me because if He did, He wouldn't let me go through this or keep me from having this. I thought God said He would give me. In, I thought God said He wouldn't give me any more than I could bear, but that is obviously not true because He hasn't got me out of this situation. I've been praying and asking God to take me out of the situation, but He's but I'm still in it. Fourthly, I must have not done or given enough to God for him to bless me. Lastly, and this is where a lot of these first responses end up. He must not be God. Because if he's not going to answer the cries of my heart for the things that I want and what I'm asking for, he must not be God. How many people in our lives do we know who culminate their whole belief about God into one moment in their life when they needed God the most, but he wasn't there? Or maybe you were sitting here today angry at God, shaking your fist at God because he didn't give you what you thought you needed when you asked or desperately wanted something not to happen. So you spent your whole life trying to disprove God or try to get him back. Just the other day, I was talking to my neighbor, Craig, and I said, man, I'd love for you to come and fellowship with our family. I would love for you to come to our uh, cookout this coming Wednesday. He said, I'll be at the cookout. Man, I'd love for you to come and gather with us on those days. He said, oh, man, I don't, my family, we didn't grow up in church. That's not what we do. I just wonder. I just wonder if those things has happened in his life. Where he sought things out or in the dark moments of his life he asked God to move but he hasn't. Now he waits in bitterness. I don't know but we will pray for Craig. We will pray that God will draw him in unto salvation. Many will argue with these points and say God is contradictory to himself James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. I'm asking and I'm not receiving. You say just ask, but we must read the rest of the passage. In James 4.3, he says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. When you have poor theology of what your position was or is before God, before you were saved, then our understanding of how we pray and ask God will be wrong. When you ask in my name. We talk about this passage without confronting the crippling heresy in the American church. Thousands of churches in America are built on this false gospel of God wanting to give you everything that you ask for, and he is about making your life the best and the easiest ever. And how dare God make your life difficult if you were one of his children. If we could gain our best life now, receive everything we ask for what we need is there for the gospel in our life. I say it again. If we could gain our best life now and receive everything we ask for, what need is there for the gospel in our life? It's one of the same reasons when we look at Paul and he had a thorn in the flesh and he said, God, please remove it, but he didn't. But if God would have, what kind of, what would Paul's dependence on God look like? He wouldn't need him. Church, our father is not a vending machine. With push of a button, he responds to our request. You know what happens when the vending machine is not working. Think back to your days in elementary school or high school when you could get a Coke because your teachers would let you do that, but then all of a sudden the machine didn't put, bring out what you wanted. It ate your dollar. We then begin to kick. For some, we begin to curse and we go and complain to our friends. I mean, I go next door to my work, there's a vending machine, and I'm not going to, I mean, I've lost count how much money I've lost in that machine because it doesn't work. But for some reason, I still go back to it. And I get so ticked off, and I come back to the office, and I'm like, it ain't another dollar. So we start to kick the machine. We then go to another vending machine until we get what we want. If you do do that, please record yourself. I would love to see that video of that tantrum. But do you see the problem here? Do you see the problem here? When we have a poor view of God or no relationship with God and don't get what we want, we just go somewhere else to get it. I think a lot of this manifests in how much people church hop from place to place. There is a struggle. The purpose of your relationship with God is not to get, but to know and do the will of the Father. I believe this is why it is so hard for people to believe. They try out the Christian faith, but when they realize Jesus doesn't make their earthly troubles go away, in some cases, they get worse. Then they publicly display what they believe in their heart. They've rejected the gospel. They reject the gospel. We see this time and time again. Have you ever processed the thought of how many of the apostles, what happened to them after Jesus ascended? And we think about how faithful they were. I mean, they wrote books of the Bible, but then they get killed. They get utterly and brutally murdered for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. We hear stories and stories now of Middle Eastern believers who are seeking it all for the gospel, but their heads are getting chopped off. Do they get the short end of the stick? No. I think they are pursuing the will of God. They're being faithful. They're pursuing Him. They're not looking at it on what is in it for us. They're about, Lord, how can you become more famous in my life, in my family, in my city, in my country, so that more churches may be planted because people are being saved and discipled through the name of Christ. Our request to God must be centered on to know and do the will of the Father. John 14:13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the son. John 15:7, if you abide in me, my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 16:23, in that day you will ask a nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. We must know the context of God's Word rather than fishing for answers to get the things out of God. But at this point in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is making a declaration to his followers followers on how they should pray for God's wisdom and spiritual growth. Jesus has spent much time identifying what is expected of a believer. And in the past past sermons, he's bringing true meaning to the laws and pronouncing the perfection his father requires. Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Nearing the end of this chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a common theme of judgment and Jesus has reminded everyone we are always living under the judgment of God. Theologian John Stott says this, The eye of God is upon us, and this life is a kind of preparatory school for the great life that is awaiting us beyond death and time. His listeners are seeing that everything they do holds great significance— An impending judgment is upon everyone. You and I are included in this that are in this room right now. So are our neighbors. So is our city. So are the nations. These listeners are overwhelmed with Jesus' word that they must be perfect. God has unattainable standard by which we will be judged. Matthew 7, 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What is The measure. It's God's holiness, his righteous perfection that we cannot measure up to. Practicing our deeds before men only displays your fallen nature through the deception of wanting to gain your salvation, your value, your worth, through your deeds and the recognition of others. I can only imagine how these were received by the hearers, He's unpacking these truths of our own hopelessness and helplessness. They are seeing their desperate need. We can only imagine what they are thinking. I'm broken. I need cleansing. I'm insufficient to keep the law and gain righteousness. But for these listeners, all the ensuing judgment they face and seeing how they can't remove the logs from their eyes was overwhelming. They need help, they need grace. Jesus is showing them where that can be given. There's hope to only be found in Christ, to be justified and reconciled to the Father, and Christ's perfection and righteousness being imputed to us through his death, his burial and resurrection. Jesus was here to show our Father in heaven, was a father of mercy and grace and heard the cries of his children, These followers were feeling the persistence of wanting God's wisdom and spiritual growth because of their great need for help and grace. The sight of God's good and perfect standard and their sin and hopelessness was driving them to their knees and to God's eternal help and grace. Jesus gives us these three promises of persistence that should come from every follower of Jesus. Verse 7 ask and it will be given to you That's number 1 seek and you will find that is number 2 knock and it will be open to you that is number 3 for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open i would argue that there is a degree of ascending intensity that jesus is proclaiming here asking implies for a conscious need seek involves asking but adds action and knock includes action plus acting plus perseverance. Like Bethy and I's five and two-year-old Rylan and Colton, they are the two most persistent creatures on the planet, I promise you. Like we need real, real counseling and help from you to pray for us. It is exhausting. My two-year-old woke up at two o'clock or six, 6.30, Uh, It's a debatable time. I'm sitting on the couch, um, and he comes in. He goes, can I have my muffin? I'm like, brother, go to bed. It is too early. But it is interesting. As a father, I'm learning that God is saying our asking in his name should be this consistent and annoying as a child is to their parents asking for things. Like God is giving us an invitation, I want to give you wisdom, I want to give you my knowledge, I want to give you spiritual maturity. As parents, our children are completely dependent on us, and our goal is to help them be independent, taking care of their needs one day. But with God, He is saying the opposite. You see, in the eyes of God, we physically grow up and mature and he is wanting us to be completely dependent on him and our dependency for him should look like the dependency our children have towards us for a season of their life. And he will never waver or get tired in our asking. Never. Never. He never wavers. He never gets tired. Can you imagine how much God puts up with? Can you imagine how much God puts up with you and I? He is saying, I want to give you my wisdom. I want to give you my knowledge. I want you to grow spiritually. And he's saying, beat down the door. You knock I'm going to respond and lavish the blessing of my knowledge and wisdom to you. The problem for a lot of us is we're asking for the wrong things. We're asking for temporal comforts and gaining the ease of life. When do we most cry out to God? It's when life is stressful and exalting and we're at each other and our relationships are broken. Listen, God is saying, cry out to uh, me every moment even when the things are going good and you think and you're tempted that you don't need you. We have a program living resident. His life was going great. Everything was perfect. He had a church family that loved him, a pastor who was discipling him. He had a wife who loved him. He had had some past issues, but his kids loved him. It was like his kid's birthday. He's sitting on the couch. Everything's going perfect. And he said... You know what would go great with this? Man, a little bit of alcohol. A little bit of alcohol. Next thing you know, the brother's in jail. His wife was about to give birth to their second child. He gets arrested, misses his child's birth. His pastor has to come to him in the cell and say, this is your child who was just born. The issue is not saying things are going well. The issue is this, is that we self-proclaim that we made it well. That we got ourselves to this position. John Stott again says this, Our Lord does not promise to change life for us. He does not promise to remove difficulties and trials and problems and tribulations. He does not say that he is going to cut out all the thorns and leave the roses with their wonderful perfume. No. He faces life realistically and tells us that these are the things to which the flesh is heir, and which are bound to come. But he assures us that we can so know him that whatever happens, we need never be frightened, we need never be alarmed. He puts all that that in this great and comprehensive promise. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. This is just one of the biblical ways of repeating this message which runs through the scriptures as a golden cord from beginning to end. Process this with me. I see you struggling in need. I want to freely give you my wisdom, grow you spiritually, make you more like my son. You are my child. I love you. I know what you're going through. Let me take your yoke. I'll give you mine. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Walk with me. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I give you rest. Our Creator is offering to walk with you. Make us clean. Make us more like his son. Because when we die to self, we become alive in Christ and become his child. Do you not know what this means? Stott said that when realistically, and tells us that these are the things to which we, our flesh is heir, do you know what you deserve? Do I know what I deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God right now, today, tomorrow, and forever. But he lavishly poured out his grace and mercy upon us. And now, now, through the work of salvation, through his sovereign act of grace and mercy, he wants to lavishly pour his knowledge and wisdom into us. He wants to intimately walk with us. He wants to know us by name and give us every spiritual blessing. Whether asking, seeking, and knocking should be ascending intensity, we can all agree needs to be with intensity. Instead of intensely pursuing the fame of our own name, our own wealth, our own comfort, our own pleasure, and our own safety, Jesus is saying, ask your Father through my name. And you won't have to worry about anything. Paul writes this in Philippians. He says, while in prison, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. You cannot say that in... I've never been in prison. Anybody in prison? I've never been in prison. But I can confidently say that you cannot say that in prison without Christ, knowledge of Christ. We are able to pray because of Jesus interceding on our behalf, beginning with him, conquering our sin at the cross, and conquering our death at the resurrection. The truth is now Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, our Father, on his kingly throne, hearing our prayers in his name and making them known to God. And when we ask in his name, we are saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom Come, your will be done on an earth as it is in heaven. We are pronouncing, we want God to be glorified, honored, and receive all the praise through whatever we are going through. Verse 9 and 10, Jesus continues on to say, Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Jesus goes on to affirm that what he's telling his followers to do, for many, they had lived pursuing God as if he was far off and could not be touched. Now they are encountering a God in the flesh and are overwhelmed with freedom and joys witnessing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of Christ coming true. Jesus proceeds to show several illustrations from human family relationships with two rhetorical questions. If his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? That's foolish. Number two, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? With the first question, no father would deceive his son in this way. Not even the cruelest of fathers would rob his son of the physical needs of their child. I have seen men who have been verbally, physically, and sexually abused that have been wounded deeply by their father and men in their life. But they're still living. You know why? Their fathers were still feeding them. They were still giving them bread. This is how ridiculous what Jesus is saying, because it's like, of course, no father would give his son a stone, no matter how upset he was with him. Some of us could have had great fathers. And some of you want to do nothing. Nothing. You want to do anything you can to forget or not talk about your father. The point of Jesus' question is to not think about your earthly father, but to see that no matter what kind of father you have, it will in no way compare to your heavenly father who loves you, created you, and made you for a greater purpose than your earthly father would ever hope or dream for you. A good and great father is one who looks at his child and says, I am not the most important thing in your life, and I cannot satisfy the needs in you. I want to see great things happen in your life, but I cannot meet those needs. But I know the one who can, and it is our heavenly father. Knowing your father will give you the grace to forgive your earthly father. That's the beauty of this. You rightly stand in judgment of your heavenly Father, but in His grace and mercy, He came in the form of a man, Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man, pay the due penalty for the sins that you rightly deserve, no matter how much of a victim you have experienced in your life, and He has come to then impute His righteousness in you because you are not good. In this passage, He references to these listeners, to those that he's preaching, he says, your father. That's what he knows that he's speaking to believers. He's saying that I am the one who can truly satisfy the needs that you have. Secondly, we see Jesus say, if a son asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? This was a conflicting question for a follower to accept. Jesus has just acknowledged that the the Heavenly Father, your Father, will meet your everyday basic needs. I see people every day who question this, getting their basic needs met. I have to look at them, and I have to remind myself with this too. I have to tell them, I say, look, yes, God knows everything. He knows the amount of hairs on your head. He knows how a flower is going to get fed. He knows how a sparrow is going to find his food. He knows everything. Doesn't he just as more know about your needs? I say, see, see, God, here's the thing. I have to look at myself and I have to look at others. See, God promises to meet our needs. He just never tells us how he's going to do it. That's the frustrating part because we so desperately want to be in control. So he snakes this next step with this second question. This is a conflicting question for a follower to accept. If a son asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? No father would give his son a serpent. I am deathly scared of snakes. I'm underneath my house yesterday as my plumbing is out. Well, half of my house. Like, we don't know what's wrong. It's so frustrating. I just want to sit down, like, right now, because I know when I leave here, like, this is the best place I could be right now. So, but when I I'm, have I'm, I'm a headlamp on, I'm crawling through underneath my house, and it's like this much room. It's one of those old houses, you know, like new houses, like my five-year-olds, like walking normal, you know, holding a flashlight for me. And then we thought, hey, let's buy our older house with a cross Baller It makes total sense. So we're walking under, and I'm, you know, I'm like, like this. I'm just looking and I like take a step and I look some more. I hate snakes, deathly scared of snakes. And so here, I think there's something going on here, but no father would give his serpent because they all knew, according to the Old Testament, a serpent was unclean food and would defile them before God. It is clear, Jesus is saying, your father, your heavenly father, he is concerned about your spiritual needs. He is concerned about your spiritual needs. It's very clear. If we aren't as concerned about our heart and spiritual condition as God is, then you are in trouble. I am in trouble. If you're spending more time worrying about the troubles and cares of this world and the condition of your heart, then you are in trouble. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus goes on to say to these followers um, who are um, apart from God, are unclean, they're sinful and they're wretched, they know how to give good gifts. Like, what does what the one thing that a father does who's trying to earn favor with their son or to appease their son, they give really good gifts, right? Like, I didn't have the best car growing up, but I got a car to, given to me. It was an 81 Chevy full-size with a train horn on it. So my father-in-law's here, and I remember before I dated my wife, uh, my wife tells me the story all the time. I waved, I had a massive dent in the side. I had to literally dukes a hazard climb out of this truck because my door wouldn't open. I honked the horn and my father-in-law, he goes, who's that guy? (laughs) And it was me, your son-in-law. So, but here's the thing. The worst of fathers give great gifts to their children. How much better are the good gifts of our heavenly father? If the most sinful and wretched people know how to give and care for the basic needs of their children and beyond, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give and bestow spiritual blessings upon his children? It is that great news. In the parallel passage, Luke eleven thirteen, 13, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is it. He gives us the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, wants to come and live within us. Does that not just put a smile on your face that he wants to come and dwell within us and live through us when we were children of wrath and now we're children of light? His divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness and through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your Father with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For in this way, there will be rich, will be richly provided for you and an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. I close with this. Asking, seeking, and knocking is about our devotion and prayer to God to receive his gifts for our ever help and need and persevering. It is by Jesus' help and grace we are able to persevere. It is by the Holy Spirit we are able to stay faithful. We must be a community that persistently perseveres together in Christ. We must be a community that persistently serves and cares for one another. Thirdly, you must be a member of this body that allows people to persistently and serve and care for you. Do you know, as hard as it is for me to receive a gift from you, it is really hard. If you ask me to come and mow your yard today, I will be there in a second. But if you say you're going to come and mow my yard, I will staunchly stand up against you and tell you no. I, can't, I, just, I have such a hard time receiving gifts. Receive each other's gifts because I need to receive your gifts so that you can allow, I can allow you the opportunity to let the gospel work um, towards me. So when I refuse something, please say no. I know how messed up you are. I'm going to give this to you anyway. Right? I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about friendship, time, okay? I mean, you can give money. HopeHouseBG.com. It's really easy. We made a simple way for you to give. But, if Christ, resp- Lastly, if Christ responds to our needs, we must respond to each other's needs and see how we are called to respond to the needs of others outside of us and to the ends of the earth. We will die, church. I stand here as a member of Mission Church. We will die. We will die. If we do not understand what it means to go to the nations, to go to our neighbors, to go to our workplaces and pursue them diligently, and persevere through whatever may come of us pursuing them, but we will die. Churches exist because disciples are made. It's just really simple. You don't plant churches so you make disciples. It's the other way around. We have to make disciples. So I close with this passage of scripture, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with church may we be a church in the city that asks and seeks and knocks and beats down the door for God's grace for his wisdom for his spiritual knowledge because if we don't we will be a stagnant pool we will not grow it is great to grow big right it's 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 really exciting but let us grow deep let us pray Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fathers that you have blessed us with. We thank you for the impacts that they have made in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how good our fathers were or how bad our fathers were, you trump all of that. And in you we find our being. And for that, Lord, we just want to make much of you. And Lord, if that is something that we are not doing in our life and is is that moments in my life that does not happen, Lord, please grant us your mercy. Grant us your grace and forgiveness. Through the power of Christ, I come to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together.